Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about Walt Disney and his Waltensham, or his worldview. And I'm not going to sit here and say I'm an expert on Walt Disney. In fact, I would argue that no one really is. Even his closest confidants, his family, may not have known all the details of his complex life and who he was and what he stood for and all the things that happened sort of in a personal belief system. But what I will, will tell you about is some of the things that maybe are more uh, publicly available that we know what he did and some of the decisions he made. And we may not know the motivations for them, but we can talk a little bit about how they kind of fit together in a way. I'm not going to try and assume here that Walt Disney would be rolling over his gra- in his grave because of dot, dot, dot. I'm just going to kind of go with the, the reality of what we know. Now, if you read his biography, you realize that his biography, uh, some, there's a couple of them, I guess. Um, both of them are um, not autobiographies. They're penned by someone else with some knowledge of him. They had some access, I guess. At least one of them had some access and had some access to close personal friends. So it's got some things in it that are right, but there's some conclusions drawn that are probably wrong. And if you watch the American story that was on PBS a couple of years ago, you realize that there's probably some inaccuracies in there too. Bob Gurr, when he was on my podcast a couple of years ago, told me as much. He's like, look, there's some things in there that are wrong. So I would argue that no one really knows Walt Disney and couldn't really address all of the things that he knows, what he believed in, all of these things. But we know that generally speaking, there's some things we can talk about with him that um, we probably could be pretty safe in talking about. And that's more about his sort of worldview and some of the things that he had and some of the things that he did. So what I'm going to do is provide these in sort of a historical perspective and talk about them a little bit. And I may have the dates out of order. So as I go chronologically through this, I may miss something or add something or talk about something out of order. So please forgive me. I'm going to try and present as much information as I can. So Walt Disney, when he was uh, started the animation studios, he wanted everyone to feel like family. He wanted it to be, you know, this family-oriented thing. And that, if you think about it, that kind of carries through to today. The fact that everyone wears a name tag with the first name on it. And you treat everyone like family. Everyone's treated equally across the company. And you don't, you know, the levels of supervision, yes, they're important, but it doesn't matter. Um, You can talk to anyone at any level and call them by their first name. So it's kind of neat that way. He wanted that family-oriented thing. So Walt had this belief in a family. And when he created his animation studios, he wanted everyone to feel like a family. And he brought everyone in and treated them all equally in that sense, right? So he had certain things that he did and certain things that he offered and certain working styles that he wanted to have. The problem was, this is a business he's running. And there are people who have different ideas on how businesses should run and things that should happen. So along the way, he had a few people who really caused trouble for him because they didn't want to follow that. In fact, there were three particular animators who thought that his method of running the company was wrong and that he should um, do things in a different way. 
um, some of the company policies and so forth they, they thought should be different. So they actually tried to unionize. They wanted to create a, uh, a union to be able to control some of what the workers had rather than letting Walt run it as a family business and telling them what they had to do. Reportedly, by most accounts, this upset Walt. He didn't want to have people telling him that way. He treated everyone like family. The fact that someone would stand on the outside and go, we don't agree with you, bothered him. And so that, hold on to that thought for just a minute because that was something that was interesting when it happened, right? So he also was really good about hiring people. Now, Walt was always a person of the times. He was doing what the times of that, uh, that epoch or that period allowed him to do or, you know, kind of doing what was socially acceptable in a sense. So when it came down to hiring people, he hired women and he gave them good jobs and he had them, he promoted them to do things, but they were still held back to a degree. They weren't given all the plum jobs and all the best things. They were just given some of the, some of the work to do, but he did hire them and people of color or other ethnic minorities. Yeah, he didn't do as much for them. Uh, they weren't hired as much. And that was, again, a sign of the times. But it's not that he wasn't aware of it. You know, from, by all accounts, he was sort of aware of what he was doing, but he was still living within the confines of the time. So anyway, you know, he did these things. He had these things going on. It was interesting. He, you know, he started, started some things like this. But he also started to get to know people a little bit. You know, politicians, other people around in the industry, um, you know, other, other Hollywood types. And it was kind of interesting because he was building these relationships and these foundational things. So during the Second World War, uh, his, his movie studio, his production studio, was being used by the Army as a communications center or something. The Army had moved into his headquarters and had taken over. And this was okay with him because, in a way, in a business sense, he was, he was uh, making some money. And he was also doing his patriotic duty. He also produced uh, short, short animations that helped the war effort. So it was anti-Nazis, anti-whatever, you know, all these things about fascism that he created in his movie studio, in his animation studio there. So he was still creating product. And this was good because, you know, here he was, he was being a patriotic American. And that was part of, you know, this war effort. This was part of the thing that was going on. So kind of interesting, you know, he was, now he was developing this relationship with the military and some other people in, in government. As I said, he was kind of developing these political relationships and these affiliations flash forward a few more years and there was a lot of discussion about things happening in this country that were un-American after the war. I guess it started before the war, but anyway, there were a lot of things that were happening that people thought were un-American. And there was this belief that we needed to protect our way of life, our American values from communism. And so there was a, a number of things going on in the country at that point in time that were very uh, anti-fascist, right? They wanted to build on something that was there and build on that sentiment. So you listen to some of the stories that come out. You had the McCarthy hearings. You had these other things that were going on. And there was a group called the House Un-American Affairs Committee that was a uh, House of Representatives select committee that was looking at rooting out this evil, this communist uh, incursion. And so what they were doing was they were trying to label people as communists. And they were trying to you know, call people out to protect the American way of life. And I don't know Walt Disney's motivation for it. I couldn't begin to tell you what it might be. But for some reason, Walt Disney decided to work on uh, the committee and actually testify before the committee a couple of times because he was a Hollywood insider and he had some knowledge of what was going on in Hollywood. And he talked about things that were happening in Hollywood in his testimony. And when it came time to actually call out some people who were being un-American, three of the people that he called out specifically 
were those three animators who stood up against him and wanted to create a union. He called them un-American. So never forget that there was some motivation for that. You know, I don't know if it was retribution or if he was just mad or what happened, but certainly there was a lot of things happening there. So Walt Disney uh, continued and he wanted to build Disneyland, this wonder place where he would have this, uh, this great park uh, in California. So he started planning and strategizing how he would build it. And he needed a little help. Um, one of the things he needed was the city, the county, and the state to give him some rights to, have, to use the land as he wanted to. Um, so he had these ideas on how he might use the land, and he struggled a lot with how to get it done. And so he wound up building a park that probably wasn't exactly what he wanted, but it was a good test case for how to build something and make something that was close to what he wanted. So he built this, um, this theme park. Now, along the way, he had to get money to, to make the theme park. So he pitched a lot of different people and he talked to a lot of different people and he talked to a lot of land planning types when he was doing some work along the way to try to figure out how to get this, this land. And they gave him some advice and some tips and some suggestions. And it kind of, it, you, you can guess that it probably stuck with him because we'll get back to some of the things that he had later um, that he was using. But anyway, he was working on building this park and he wound up going to ABC and uh, he pitched the idea to ABC to see if they would fund it. And ABC said, yes, we'll fund it in return for you producing a weekly show that would talk about something in, you know, the culture and what we would, you know, your true life adventures and those kinds of things. So Walt agreed. And uh, that's where the uh, Walt Disney, um, the wonderful world of Disney came from. And that idea was born just because it was a, it was at the right place from a business perspective. But what it allowed him was some access to different things. So at some point, he was able to negotiate to actually film some of his stuff inside FBI headquarters, which was unusual. No, nobody had ever done that before. So kind of interesting that he was able to accomplish that because of this now open door, right? Something else that he had a connection for. Um, probably didn't hurt that he was testifying at the, um, at the, the HUAC, that uh, Un-American uh, Affairs, Affairs Committee. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is he was able to go there and do that. So kind of interesting how he got that access and he was able to do something unusual. Now, something he realized when he was building Disneyland was that he needed a little more uh, political capital, something, some people to kind of help, I'll say grease the wheels, though maybe that wasn't it. It was just sort of connect, connections that would help him get some of what he wanted. And he became friends with politicians in California and, and the like that would help him and guided him a little bit. I'm not saying that they pulled the strings or did anything for him, but I think they gave him a little bit of... Um, oomph to help get some of the some of the product done so if you look at uh, Richard Nixon became friendly with the Disney's and you know he I don't wouldn't I wouldn't I would argue that he's probably never really a great friend you know it wasn't like they were um, inviting each other over for Christmas dinner or anything but I think they were probably you know relatively close in the business sense and uh, Nixon had a great love for Disney and what Disney was doing so there was that interesting connection so he becomes president and now Disney has one more connection he also had uh, Ronald Reagan um, there as, uh, as a guest on opening day. He became friends with Ronald Reagan through the actors community, you know, through, the, through Hollywood. And uh, as he was talking to Ronald Reagan, he got him to be a guest at the, uh, at the park on opening day and give some you know, reports on what was going on. Ronald Reagan, of course, winds up being governor of California and then president. So and it was after Disney died, but that connection never goes away. So Walt Disney had uh, something that was really neat, a neat, neat set of connections, an interesting business perspective and some things that he was doing. 
So flash forward again a few more years, he wants to build something else outside of Disneyland and go to, go to somewhere else. So he goes, he winds up going to St. Louis and talking about uh, what he wanted to do there. And they were, they were interested in him having come and help with the riverfront and rebuild the area. And he comes up with a family-friendly park and some ideas for that. And it's really clever and it's kind of neat the way he comes up with a couple of things. But the deal starts to fall apart along the way. Now, why it fell apart exactly is probably anyone's guess. I think historically we don't know exactly what happened, whether it was all about uh, the relationship with Anheuser-Busch, whether they started pushing him to do certain things that were outside of his comfort zone, whatever happened. Somehow or another, the deal fell apart. And you have to believe that the fact that Anheuser-Busch was involved and they wanted to sell alcohol at his you know, family-friendly area, and he didn't want to, probably was a key contributor to it. What else happened? I couldn't tell you. But I can tell you that you know he had these ideas and things he wanted to do, and it wasn't coming true there, so he pulled out. He went somewhere else. Where he did go was to Florida. Florida had a really interesting proposition for him, or it presented a really interesting uh, uh, proposition to him that he could do some things that were a little different and a little outside of uh, the norm because Florida might acquiesce to some of his demands. He was buying effectively swampland in Florida. And don't miss the fact that he was using shell corporations to make the purchases. Yeah, you could absolutely make the case that it was totally a business decision to uh, use shell corporations to buy the, uh, buy the land there because he was trying to protect himself from the price hikes and whatever. But he also was trying to protect his brand, right? He wanted to do this in secrecy because he had some plans for something he was going to do there in Florida. And he didn't, want every, he didn't want to tip his hand and let everyone know what he was going to do. And here he had pulled out of St. Louis and he was trying to build something in Florida. And he had this idea for an experimental prototype city. Now, in another podcast, I'm going to have to talk about this city in more detail and some of the things that he really had in mind there or how this was going to work because there's some interesting nuggets in there, I think, that would be worthwhile talking about. So he goes on to build this, um, this city and, uh, or wants to build this city and goes off to building, buying the land in Florida. And, you know, one of the other problems he had was Florida had this really interesting and complicated relationship where they sold off the mining rights in addition to the land use rights as separate things. So the mining rights weren't owned by the, the people he was buying the land use rights from. So he had to go and buy the mining rights. And wouldn't you know, he hires a former CIA operative to go and help him conduct that business. Now, why do you use, in your business, in the 1960s, why are you using a CIA operative to help you do that? There must have been some other motivation for that. It, can't, it could be coincidence that it just happened that way. But it feels like there's more to it. And there was something more to that story, that there was, you know, he had some other political motivation that it was part of the part of the game right that he was playing i don't know i'm just it feels like there could it could very well have been so anyway uh he winds up buying all this land and one of the things that when he was talking about buying disneyland and you know talked to all these land planners and everything one of the things that one one person told him was you know what you want to do you want to buy land in two adjacent counties so that way you can pit the counties against each other and you're taking the county out of the picture and if you're not buying in a city proper or you don't have a, the city doesn't have authority in that area, then you're taking the city out of the picture and now you're only dealing with the state. And it was very clever advice, right? So now, his, in the sense of actually making this work, he could actually uh, just work with the state. And so he had these ideas on what he was going to do, right? And he had something in mind. Then you watch that film of him being found out by the reporter at the Orlando Sentinel, he comes to Florida and he meets with a governor 
and he sits in some sort of press conference and it's, he's very cagey about what he says. Look, he was a bad poker player and it was obvious he was not telling the full truth there, that he was holding something back. What he was holding back, I really don't know. But it seems like he had, you know, he wanted to, he wanted to control the situation rather than them controlling it. And the governor's very excited to have him come there and, you know, this and that and the other thing. And now he's got to build a relationship with the, with the government of Florida. So that starts. And he has different um, political things he does and different people that meet with him and different things that happen. And he creates that, that movie, the one where he's standing in front of these six foot tall uh, board where he's talking about the Disney World project and he talks about the things that are going on there and he talks about his Epcot Center in great detail and wants to get into the discussion of how that's going to come together. And while he wasn't able to present it to the state because he, he died uh, about a month later after he filmed that, two months later, something like that, um, the company used it to its full advantage to go into the state and say, hey, we, wanna, we want to be able to control the land here and do everything we want to do. And look, it's Walt. Walt wanted to do this. Here's the video of him, the film of him telling you that. And, you know, the hard strings are being tugged on there. And we're using, they're using that to their advantage to come up with a better way of talking about how the Walt Disney Company can take advantage of Florida. And I use that kind of loosely. I don't mean they were actually taking advantage of it because there was a quid pro quo that happened there. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. Before I come back to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the uh, social actions that Walt was involved in. Walt was always a guy who didn't see people um, any differently than anyone else. You know, everybody was the same in his eyes. That's why everybody wore a name tag. Now, he did represent the time, so he was always looking for um, the things that were right at that point in time. So if you look at, like, the movie Song of the South that he put out, right, you could look at it today and go, wow, that's wildly racist. But at the time, that actually was the timely topic. It was topical. It was the way people talked about uh, the, the population that had formerly been slaves, right? It was sort of that, um, that's the way people talked about it. Right or wrong or indifferent, that's the way it was. And his hiring practices reflected that too, as I mentioned before. So you kind of look at all of those things and you realize the guy had some perspective on how this should all come together. So when you think about Walt Disney, you kind of have to consider that he was interested in treating everyone fairly. And uh, Eisenhower, when he was president, had this idea for this international relationship and trying to build international friendships. And so he was trying to encourage companies to uh, do that, to do just that, to hire people, be internationally friendly, to, to get different kinds of faces in your crowd when you're hiring people. And Disney saw that as an opportunity at Disneyland. So he started this international program where he was hiring people from different walks of life to come and work there. And um, what's his name, Bill Sullivan, one of the uh, Disney legend talked about that, that that's one of the things that Walt Disney did really well. He took, he embraced that. He was really interested in that piece to the puzzle because he really wanted to, um, again, perhaps for personal reasons, perhaps for business reasons or for, for political gain, he might've wanted to get people engaged there and, uh, you know, have the right people working there and doing, doing interesting things. And then of course, when you flash forward to what the company does today, uh, or before I get to that, uh, when you flash forward to what the company did in the 19, uh, later in the 1960s when uh, Johnson was president and uh, Johnson had an interest in social action and wanted people to be treated fairly and everyone to have an opportunity. And uh, he was really big on the whole, uh, um, the whole uh, movement that Martin Luther King was in, uh, involved in and uh, trying to encourage um, people to do good things and you know, the uh, promotion of, um, of people who happen to have black skin. And he was really big on that part of it. So those all come together because Walt Disney embraced that too. 
So kind of interesting, you know, he had an interesting perspective on the world and he wanted people to be treated fairly and equally. I think that's fairly clear through the things that we know. Now, how reality treats that and how we think about it or how he actually did it or what he thought himself, who knows? But we know that that's the, those are the kinds of things he was thinking about based on his interactions and his reactions. So anyway, flashing forward, the company has done more. The company has grabbed onto that, that notion. Well, the Walt Disney Company was one of the first companies when there was discussions about same-sex relationships. The Walt Disney Company was one of the first companies that said, hey, we're going to offer benefits to same-sex couples. They did it before it was fashionable. But Disney saw it as just there's an, op- there's an opportunity here to uh, be, do the right thing and engage people socially and do something right. And so they did. And their hiring practices were always about hiring the right people. Their international program became something of, of note. And it's funny because here's a little side note for you. Disney wanted, to, when they were building Epcot, the Disney company wanted to hire people from different countries. And they actually lobbied the U.S. government to create a special visa, a visa program in the U.S. government just for Disney that they called the Disney visa, colloquially, to actually be able to bring uh, international exchange students over and have them work at Epcot. Now, the, the rules were very specific. They had to work at Epcot. They couldn't work somewhere else. They couldn't do anything else, but they had to work in Epcot and do the work they were doing. And there had to be some educational and exchange type things that happened there too. But Disney lobbied Congress for an actual visa. Go figure. You know, so never forget that there's a political connection there all the time. So um, really interesting the way Disney kind of always had these connections always sort of the social thing and when you look at the social aspect of today where Disney is saying hey we're going to let people wear the clothes the costumes that they're most comfortable with we're going to let people express themselves through tattoos or you know facial hair or whatever things are right as long as they're tasteful you know that's extending on that that concept that you're inclusive that you want everyone to feel part of the part of the program right it's those things that you do that for, that really um, push ahead in Walt Disney's vision so as you look around, you go, okay, you know, they, he did all these things, they did all these things. There's one more connection I wanted to share. And that's when I was um, living in Orlando at some point. I was doing some work on a, a committee that was uh, doing something in, in the city. And it was kind of funny. I went to some city, city council meetings or at least, you know, read through some of the notes on them or whatever. Did some work that way. It was all superficial. I wasn't really involved. It was just something I was doing for a small company. And one of the things I noticed was, as you delve into the politics of everything, Disney is tightly connected to the city, both counties and the state. They know what's going on. They got all these land use rights and they got all these things that were happening and the state hates that they have it. Today, the state hates that they have it, that they have all these land use rights. Disney got a you know, special, um, special improvement district, which is a legal term for how they can manage themselves in their, in their district. And they did it through very cunning and clever ways. But the state hates it and wants, you know, is always looking to try and manipulate it and change things about it. That's been the way it's been for you know, 50 years since the park opened, basically. And they have all these things that they're trying to, uh, to do. But you know, as I sat there in these, in these different meetings, these committee meetings and whatever, the thing that I noticed was Disney was always tightly involved. If it involved Disney or impacted Disney in any way, they always sent a representative. And they may have just been there to take notes. Sometimes they were there to talk. Sometimes it was something else. And the, the thing that I noticed was publicly, Disney would always say something along the lines of, hey, you know, if you impact our business or something doesn't go the way we want it to, we could just shut our doors tomorrow and you'd lose the tax base. 
Now, they never actually used those words, but it was clear to me, reading through some of the transcripts and whatever, that that was the context. And if you lived in the city and you paid attention, or lived in the area, and you paid attention to the news, and especially the 90s, that came out a lot. It, it was just that kind of a thing. You know, Disney wanted complete autonomy to do what they wanted. They didn't want anyone to tell them different. So when you look at the politics that exist today, look around and you see that Disney still has a contentious relationship with the state. Two years ago, the state wanted to take away Disney's ability to create uh, nuclear power on, on their property, which they have the right to do under the law, which is kind of crazy, but they still have to go through the regulatory agencies and whatever. But they had, you know, the state wanted to take that away. And I think Disney was okay with that. There was one case some years ago, maybe in the 70s or early 80s, where Disney had gotten involved. Um, there was an incident with their own security and someone had been killed because they were being chased by a security guard. Whole long story there. But Disney wound up having to go before the state and had to, had to relinquish any sort of rights to having a police force on Disney. They have to use the local established police forces in the state in order to have police presence. They can have security, but they can only be security. You have to call the police when you need the police. So all of these things kind of come around. And, you know, so here we had the pandemic and the governor of Florida wanted Disney to reopen. It's a cash cow. Wants to reopen, wants money to be coming in. Totally get it. Disney, of course, wants to be open for a lot of reasons, but Disney is not ready to be open in the way that he wants. So there's a little contention there about how they reopen and how it works because Disney wants to control itself. Right? They're a private company, yet they have regulatory rights in the state of Florida. So it's really confusing and very, very weird. Um, so there's a lot of interesting connections there still today with how Disney operates and the things that they do in the space. So it's just, I find it kind of interesting. So there's always this connection between politics and Walt, the Walt Disney Company and Walt Disney the man. There's this interesting relationship that developed over time between all these different um, people and, you know, these presidents or soon-to-be presidents or people that were connected politically or people that had these different ideas. And Walt Disney was trying to promote his own business and his brand, of course, because that's what you do. But where, did the li- where was the line, right? Where was, where was politics? Where was he? Where was his personal belief? Disney was, um, you know, had changed party affiliations along the way and partly, be- partly due to his own belief system and what the, what the politicians would do for him. So you have to understand that it was complicated, right? And the Disney company has these relationships with different people as a result of that. And Disney has its own political action committees, as most large corporations do, and has a lot of say and a lot of political clout when it comes to different things because they have many things. I mean, look at, look at their own security services, you know, the way they protect their parks and the things they do. They, fire, they hired a former FBI director to run their security. I mean, it's important from a business perspective to do that, but, you know, and they get special dispensation from the government, um, you know, so they get, some, they get some security briefings on very specific things. They have uh, control over their own airspace. You know, all these things that are very political in a, in a way. So that's the story of Walt Disney and his worldview and his political connections and, and that sort of thing. He wanted something that he wanted to be proud of, that he wanted to make his own. And uh, he did it in his own way. And that was kind of the interesting story there. Now, why is this relevant to me today? Well, you know, as you know, my podcast was supposed to be about Disney history. And over time, I evolved it based on people's feedback. You know, hey, could you put in some more current events? Of course. Yep, put in current events. And then the world changed. You know, 18 months ago, things changed. There was a lot of things happening that were very different, that were unexpected. Um, You know, Disney had to do what Disney had to do. Politicians do what politicians do. And... 
I realized that there was this sort of disconnect, but yet there was this weird connection because Disney was always embroiled in politics. And I got a lot of feedback about some of the changes I made to the tone of my podcast. You know, for the most part, I still talk, try to talk about history, but there was a period of time in there when I was talking about some current events and some things that were going on. And some people took, I'll use the word offense to it, or took umbrage with it, that I had said something that was a little off the beaten path. Why can't you just talk about Disney? Well, the fact is, I am talking about Disney because Disney's political connections are deep and meaningful. Look, there are a lot of Disney podcasts out there, some that are very wildly positive, some that have some very interesting views, some that uh, are very family friendly, some that talk about historical elements like me, um, some that go off and do other things, um, some that are on the darker side of Disney, they talk about some uh, dark side or drinking at Disney or some of those things. So you have all these different views of Disney that are out there. And, you know, they're all good in their own way. Some of them I like listening to, some of them I don't care for. But that's just life. It's nothing personal. It's just, you know, I I listen to some, I don't listen to others. This is a podcast that I wanted to be proud of, that I wanted to actually make my own, to own and and really make something I like. So this was my own labor of love. And I'm going to talk about the things that I think are important. And my one little spark segment is my moment to talk about the thing that I think is relevant at that moment in time to talk about that I think is important. So... I just want you to understand that. Look, and if you've been listening for a long time, I appreciate that. Remember that I was always trying to find something to latch onto that made this podcast a little meaningful. You know, I was always looking for something. I tried several different things, couldn't find that thing to latch onto. So the one little spark segment is the one that stuck around. And it's sort of that call to action, that moment where we think about something outside of Disney because really, that's what Disney's all about anyway. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart (laughs) of all creation right at the start of everything that's new one little spark lights up for you for my one little spark i wanted to bring up one more topic that's related to this and that's about how companies large companies especially in the united states are looking for any way to boost their bottom line and frequently that's comes to asking politicians for some sort of subsidy or tax break or other incentive in order to be more profitable. And there are goods and bads that come with that, certainly. If you pay attention to what they're doing and how they're doing it, a lot of times you can kind of look at it and make a decision whether it's really good or really bad. Sometimes it's very nuanced. When you look at companies looking for subsidies, sometimes it's a good thing because they're actually uh, bringing in more uh, economic opportunity to the state. They're employing people. They're you know, broadening the, the base of people who are, uh, are working and doing things. So there's some good that come with it. Sometimes they're taking money away from other things that could otherwise use it, like schools or uh, infrastructure or things like that. So there's a, a downside or could be a downside to it too. So you have to kind of consider it carefully and decide what's right and what's wrong in terms of what you think about these subsidies coming in. And then there was the story about what happened in Georgia a couple of months ago when Georgia changed its election laws to be more restrictive. Many companies came out against that idea and said something publicly about it. And this is where it gets kind of complicated because companies coming out and saying something about something that was going on in the political world caused a lot of dissension. In fact, you heard several politicians, and I think most notably Mitch McConnell was on this list, saying things like, effectively, hey, don't tell us what you want or what we're going to do or what's right or wrong. Just continue to give us money and we'll continue to... uh, support the, the needs that you have and give you subsidies and tax breaks and other things that are there. 
And it was kind of a weird answer to the, to the question. You know, companies are becoming more self-aware, more conscious. Um, they're trying to get people on their side because they want to sell their product and whatever. So it's a delicate balance that companies have. And they have to decide what's right. So it's kind of a, an intriguing little thing that happens here. And again, not that it's right or wrong, just an observation that that's going on. And bringing it all around right back to this podcast specifically, this episode, there's an interesting thing that happened a couple of weeks ago. Now, Disney has always had a complicated relationship with the state of Florida, as I mentioned earlier. There's a lot of things that happen back and forth between the state and the governor and the state legislature and the Disney Corporation. But Disney also has an interest in uh, doing things that benefit their bottom line, too. So if you look at the way that they reopened some of the... uh, the theme park and some of their vacation club properties, you know, you could make the case that it was either good or bad. They were doing it for the right reasons, or perhaps they were doing it for selfish reasons. You know, certainly in the case of vacation club, they kind of had to open because there was no reason to stay closed and they were legally obligated to offer the properties and so on, you know, those kinds of things. But what happened a couple of weeks ago was kind of interesting. So the state of Florida has offered many companies an opportunity to uh, come to the state and bring jobs to the state of Florida. So if you build a headquarters here, for example, the state will give you some subsidy, whether that's in in the form of cash or whether that's in tax breaks, you know, that depends on the situation, but they will do things to help the company. Now, over the last several months, Disney had been negotiating with the state of Florida to actually bring some amount of employment to the state of Florida. Now, of course, Disney is headquartered in Anaheim and they weren't planning on moving the headquarters, but what they did instead they decided that they were going to open a new campus here in Florida. And this new campus uh, would be be something that was a sort of regional headquarters that would work in digital technology, finance, and product development. They'll employ about 2,000 people, and they're making an infrastructure investment in the state of Florida somewhere in that $800 million range. So there's a lot of positives that can come from that. There's, there's some very good things that can come from employing that number of people. Some of them will move from California to Florida, certainly. Some of them will be new hires. But there'll be a lot of op- economic opportunity. And so the state of Florida offered somewhere around $570 million in tax breaks just in response to that as part of that economic development program that they've got going on. So while Disney may have opened the theme park specifically for other reasons, Never forget that there's something going on behind the scenes that gets them $570 million in tax breaks. And because the state of Florida doesn't have a state income tax and because there's a lot of other breaks and financial perks there, opening jobs up here for 2,000 people and moving it from California to Florida is a positive move from the bottom line perspective for many reasons. So just in keeping that context together on all the things that go on in the world and some of the things that happen and looking at economic opportunities and how companies interact with politicians. There's one more example of it. I just wanted to share that with you because it was apropos to the podcast I was doing. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning.
Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 